Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of sitting before your word. We should never forget the great opportunity we have. We know that many throughout history could not read. Had they been able to read, they would have not had the ability to read the Bible in their language. So we thank you today that we are able to do so and that we can know what you say and you speak to us in a clear way. And we just pray by your spirit that you would give us greater understanding today as we sit before your word and hearts that are receptive to it. In Christ's name, amen. Now, how you define whether someone is good or bad likely depends on the time and place that you find yourself in. Our culture has its own definitions of what is decent and good and right, but that's really changed over the last 20 years. In the South, maybe 60 years ago, you would say that good God-fearing hard-working, church-going folks were good people. They would come from good stock. There are people like that kind of embody that in different cultures, but probably country music does a really uh, good job of kind of in, embodying the way that people would see what the good life or being good people, what, what that was like or what it should be like. There's a song called American Pride by Alabama that has a couple lines I want to read to you. It says, Dad said, Son, I'm proud you won, but the game is more than any toy. Mama said, Now, son, say sir and say ma'am, and be proud that you're southern born. You play when you're hurt and you work when you're tired because that was Grandpa's way. It goes on. Yeah, we work and we play and we have our own ways and we don't all look alike, but if the cause is right, then we'll stand up and fight to protect our American pride. Another song from that same band. When Sunday mornings rolled around, we dressed up in hand-me-downs just in time together with the church. Sometimes I think how long it's been and how it impressed me then. It was the only day my daddy didn't work. So in this these two songs, you have family, husband and wife, children, you have work, you have play, you have church attendance, and you have defending that way of life. Does that family need the gospel? No? Yeah, there you go. They're perfect in every way. They're good folks, right? Good old boys. You think they need the gospel as much as the bad people we studied last week in the end of Romans 1. Last week you could say the bad pagan people were under God's wrath and everybody would say, oh, amen, I'm so, you know. This week... We see how the so-called good religious people are also under God's wrath. 
That's important to stop and consider. And Paul wants you to see that. Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and Christianity and Judaism very closely tied together. Very difficult, really, for the first century people just watching it to think of it any more than just a sect of Judaism, Christianity that is. And Paul is writing uh, to say that the gospel is for the whole world. You and I both know the Jews received the promise uh, prior to the Gentile world, and they were looking forward, so-called, to that promise of salvation. And so, at some level, when the church is established and all this is taking place, you can imagine the collision, and we see that in the New Testament writing, the struggle that is taking place. So, the church now that Paul is writing, this first century church, is made up of believers that come out of a former wild and rebellious people, the Gentiles, described in the end of chapter 1, and the former religious people, the Jews, described in chapter 2. So he's writing to this church, but he is also writing to the world. And he is writing to a world in this sense that he is speaking this to the church and he's describing the gospel that he is going to carry out or that they are to carry out into the world. And it's coming into a world filled with very religious people and irreligious people. That's just the reality. And so Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first... Those who've heard all the promises of God, those who grew up under like what you would say, good God-fearing folk, those who went to church, that kind of mentality, people, but also to the Greek. Uh, and again, when we use Gentile and Greek in, in a very broad sense, we might speak of it in, in terms of like uh, people that understood who God was, the one true and living God from Scripture, those who didn't. But anyway, he writes this to the Jew first and into the Greek, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so here's what he's saying, that both of these people, both the Jew and the Gentile, they need the righteousness that comes from God. Not their righteousness, but an alien righteousness, a righteousness that has come from God. Paul's argument is not just the, the, the Gentiles are in a fallen condition, but also the Jews. Everybody is in need of the gospel. They need a righteousness they do not possess. That is the argument that he is building. And if you were to read Romans 3, 21 through 25, you would say, see that what Paul builds up to that point is that all of humanity is under condemnation. All of humanity is under the wrath of God. It does not matter, even if they've had the best chance in the world, the best religious upbringing, they are all in need of the gospel. And, it, and the gospel is the good news about Jesus, His righteousness brought to us through the channel of faith, that we receive it by faith. And that's the wonderful truth that is presented. Romans 5.1 even goes on to say, say, we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. Those who are separated from God uh, by their sin, those who would experience the wages of sin, which is death, are now being reconciled to God uh, through trusting in what Christ has accomplished. If you understand that argument, you can understand this chapter. 
Now stop and say that again. If you understand what Paul is doing, he is not confused. Paul is not a confused or deranged man. Paul has a very clear mind. He has set the stage for you to understand that all of humanity, that no one out there is righteous enough to stand before God and in, in be in good standing. No one. That's what he says in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. His argument, his case is built upon the fact that it does not matter if you have been a God-rejecting pagan all of your life or a real little religious school, I mean church boy, all of your life. It, both of you are in need of the gospel. That's his argument. And the gospel is not your righteousness that you bring to the table, but rather His righteousness brought to the table and applied to you. That's the whole argument. If you don't get that argument, you will naturally misunderstand what Paul is saying. But the goal here today is, and I think it's just important for you to understand this, religious people are not saved from the wrath of God. They are not safe because they will either be, and when you lay this out, because they will be held to their own standards, because they, will pres- they, they often presume, and that's what they do, on God's mercy. And third, maybe that you could say they trust in themselves. That, that's just what they, they do. And so you just have to see that, and Paul's going to lay that out before us. When Paul concludes chapter 1 and begins chapter 2, you realize that 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 extensive list in chapter 1 is not just for the kind of the rebellious pagan, but also for the religious man. So let's look at that 2, 1 through 3, and that's where we'll start here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will um, escape the judgment of God? So he's going to stop and say, and you have to understand this, the Jews had the law of God. They, had the, they understood God's standards. They did. They had those. They could look at things and grasp this is right and this is wrong. The problem is, rather than looking in the mirror as they read those laws, they looked out into the world. You, you, you see people do that. It's, it's kind of like when you'll hear somebody sometimes say, this world, man, it's just leading, you know, I just can't believe. And they just rage about what's going on in the culture and what's going on in the society and what's going on here and what's going on there. And they're always pointing out at all the evils out there, of all the rebelliousness out there of all the wickedness out there, and you want to stop and, and say, hold on just a second, just for a moment, when you wake up in the morning, let's look at ourselves. Now, how do you feel now? What, what, what are you feeling right now? Let's look deep within your heart. What do you see now? And so it's important, Paul is not going to leave them with just this kind of outward 
religion as kind of a, a facade, he is going to delve down deep within them. And you'll notice even in that list in 128 through 32, there are a lot of attitudes, not just actions mentioned. And so sometimes, again, you get around really religious people, very upstanding people, very proud of themselves people. They tell you about all they did with their children and how they lived like, you know, they have this, you know, awesome, again, I'm awesome mentality. And, and you get there and you realize that their heart attitudes that are coming, the things that are coming out of them all the time when you hear them talk about themselves or how wonderful they are or how wonderful their children are, you recognize that deep within them is such an arrogance and a pride and you see in their hearts things that you think, yikes. I mean, there are times where, have you ever thought about this? Like, I would rather be around somebody that was a wild pagan than a really religious, arrogant, self-righteous person. Just feel more at home, you know? And I think Paul's going to confront them. And Jesus did that. They hated him for it. They killed Jesus partly because when he came on the scenes and began to reveal true righteousness, just was, it was just, it was too much for them. When the real thing showed up and their religion was confronted, they couldn't stand it. They're like, we've got to kill this guy. Because he was holiness, the embodiment of holiness. These people are, you know, it's kind of like a quick to pass judgment, like a pointing fingers kind of people. They kind of inflate their egos, you might say. Problem is, is that Paul's going to say, you're practicing the same things. It's kind of reminds you of what Jesus said where he says the same measure by which you judge another will be the same standard that you'll be judged by. And guess what? You'll be damned. It's kind of a frightening thing. Tim Keller quotes Francis Schaeffer and said, if you hung a recorder around your neck and on judgment day when you stood before the Lord and he took it off and played everything that you had said to others and about others on the subject of how they ought to live and how, uh, 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 like how they should be. If, if God were to do that with you, and he pulls it off, before he hit play, you would be begging for mercy. Right? And the reality is, it's, it's kind of that way. We need to understand that we would not escape the judgment of God if, if the judgment of God was solely based on what we said was right and wrong. Because we don't live up to it. So Paul is confronting these people that might naturally say, oh, we have lived this way. And, and what they've done is, and this is what a really religious young man or woman will do. They will choose, or their whole movement in Christianity will choose a handful of sins. And they will teach you to live up to these five or six things. Do these right, and you'll be okay. And all the other stuff that really deals with the heart on a much deeper level is kind of left out. 
Paul says, you think you're going to stand? Sometimes the greatest critics of a culture are the most egregious sinners. Religious people are not safe from God's wrath because these hypocrites will be held to their own standards. It's kind of one way to say that. Another is because they presume on God's mercy. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Religious people do not see God's kindness for them as a gracious act of holding back His judgment in order to give them an opportunity to repent, but rather they see it as some sort of blessing because they're so great. Religious people think, that's what I deserve. God has given me exactly what I deserve. Look at these children and this job and all. all, I mean, a long list of things. Oh, God knows I'm so great. Look what He's doing. He's blessing me. He actually, what we found out last week, you might be experiencing His judgment. He is allowing you to continue down a road of just loving and treasuring all the idols that you think are so great. And what you think is a blessing might be His judgment. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, you know, just kind of keep that in your mind. But what, he's, what Paul's saying here is, is all of God's kindness and patience with you is not a sign that he is saying, oh, I'm so pleased with you. It very well may be a way in which he, and oftentimes, well, that's what you would say, especially for an unbelieving person, which is what we're dealing with here. We're saying to him, listen, God has been patient with you. He has allowed your idolatrous religion. He has allowed you in your idolatry of fabricating a God into your own image that you can live up to His moral standards. He is in your rebellious and unrepentant heart. He has allowed you to live with your religion. It is a rejection of the Gospel. It's His kindness towards you. Not something you deserve. Should warm your heart to His mercy. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is, when your perverted view of what is right and good and holy and how you somehow believe that you actually deserve it. That you deserve to be in heaven when that is revealed as false. You'll see that your whole life of religion has only brought the condemnation of God.
you see this this stubborn and unrepentant heart it's used in the old testament with in a connection with idolatry though religious obedience looks godly in fact it is a form of idolatry the religious person may have utterly rejected all the current external idols that society around is worshiping uh, statues or casual sex or career and so on but they have idols in their heart and god knows their heart Religious people find their self-worth in their morality, in their rule-keeping. Actually, their rule-keeping becomes their Savior. Their rule-keeping becomes Jesus to them. It's a frightening thing. Paul is addressing that. The heart of the Gospel is God's righteousness being revealed and received by faith. Not your righteousness offered to God. Any moral person who is satisfied with their spiritual state, and they look at themselves and say, I am in good standing with God because of my righteous deeds, is denying the doctrine of the righteousness of Christ alone will be accepted by God. They are believing a damning doctrine. Do you get that? It is damning. They are trusting in a righteousness that the Scripture says is as filthy rags There is only one who is right before God based upon His own merit, and that one died for sinners like you and me. Religious people are not saved from the wrath of God because these hypocrites, in a way you could say, will be held to their own standards because these hypocrites will presume on God's mercy and do... Because they trust in themselves. Notice in verse 6, He will render to each one according to their works. Now, these verses right here are somewhat difficult, but remember what we said. Keep in mind Paul's argument. Context is king. That's one of the things you have to know in reading your Bible, is you have to follow the flow of argument. It is easy to pull verses out of context. It is easy not to read your Bible well. It is easy not to say, okay, I'm going to start in chapter 1 and move all the way through and trace the flow of the argument, but we can't do that because we want to rightly handle the Word of God. And so when we come to this, you notice this, and this is something, really, you almost feel like, okay, what is Paul getting at? Did Paul change his mind? Did that theme what I would call the theme, 116 and 17, that is righteousness from God, did it just all of a sudden, that is entered into by faith, did he just lay that aside? Do you need to add something to the fact that Christ is in good standing before the Father? The answer is, of course, no. Paul builds a logical argument. The means by which humanity will be saved is by receiving by faith the righteousness that is being revealed. 
not our own, an alien righteousness outside of ourselves. So what is Paul talking about in 2.6? I think it's important, and you can go back and look at it, but I believe it's an allusion to Psalm 62. And in Psalm 62, David is really contrasting two groups of people. Two groups. There are those who plot against God's chosen king, who lie and who say one thing with their lips and do the opposite in their hearts. You'll notice that in 3 and 4. I think the people that Paul is addressing here are those people. The Romans 2, 1 through 3 people are those people. The other group finds their rest in God alone. In 62.1, you see this. In 62.7, you see this. They find their salvation comes from Him. My salvation, my honor depends on God. He is my rock, my refuge. All of their hope is in God. And this is the attitude that God will surely reward. It, that, that's kind of the picture. I think He's drawing a distinction between these two people. So in 2.6... Paul is asking both the irreligious person and the religious person to consider what they have done, or rather, not done. Neither has repented, seeking refuge from God's deserved wrath and God's undeserved mercy. Both are seeking honor in themselves. He's addressing that very clearly. Then notice in verses 7 through 11, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. I'm just going to read a couple of things that, that, that one author noted. Is Paul is saying that works matter, not as the basis for salvation, but as the evidence that someone has faith that saves. In Psalm 62, what matters fundamentally is a person's relationship to God. They are trusting in God alone. They're putting their faith in God as their refuge, their rock, their salvation. But good works become a way to show saving faith. Here's another way to put it, and he, he gives an example actually that we have been uh, discussing somewhat in our, in our marriage kind of study, something that we talked about at some level, but that it's just kind of the same way you would think of an apple. Apple, are the, they're the evidence that an apple tree is alive, but really the nutrition to grow that comes up from the roots. The picture here, I think, when we're looking at this, that Paul's addressing is that those who have truly sought the Lord, have a heart towards the Lord, it will show up. Sometimes people will say, can you just believe in Jesus? And, and Paul's going to address this later. And, and there's never any fruit from that? No. The evidence of a truly changed heart of a life directed towards God, of a life that is trusting in God alone, it will produce, it will produce godly fruit, which is what I believe Paul is addressing here. 
He is trying to say to the religious man, do you understand the place that you're in? You are putting your hope, and you'll notice that as you look at this, that, that, that they are putting their hope in self-seeking and not really obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness. They're, they're, this self-seeking, they're putting their hope in themselves. They're trusting in themselves. They are hoping in their own, their own ways to kind of save them. So you kind of might ask yourself, what are the indicators that your heart is right with God based on this? What, what do you see? Persistence in doing good? Seeking glory, honor, and immortality? Refers to qualities that come from a life with God. Is that what you're doing? Or are you the other person in verse 8? The person that's not right with God. They're self-seeking. They're pursuing kind of their own way to kind of get to God. They're trusting in themselves oftentimes. And not trusting in God. Another thing to see in somebody that's really not seeking after God, they reject the truth and follow after evil. They refuse to really submit to God's truth. They like to maybe look at God's truth as a means for them to have access to God rather than seeing God's truth as revealing that they are in absolute desperate condition in need of Christ's righteousness alone. Look at verses 9 and 10. It kind of repeats the same thing. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile, meaning there's no favoritism. Everybody stands before God in the same way. If you're a really, really wretched, wild, crazy, rebellious person, you look at that person, you say, listen, they're under the wrath of God. They need to be saved by the grace of Christ. They need to be saved by the righteousness of Christ. Or you go over here and you look at somebody who's clean, kind of have a clean cut look. They've kind of lived a pretty good life. They, the culture thinks that they're in good shape. That person needs the gospel too. This person over here might say, yeah, I know where I am. I know where I stand. This person over here might say something like, well, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't really, I don't know that I need really a, a very big savior. They see themselves in pretty good condition, you know. I was thinking this week as I was studying this passage about something we've studied on a number of occasions, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, really, Jesus is talking to two groups of people. Uh, and really, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's explaining the situation at hand. The Pharisees looked at all these people entering into the kingdom, Gentile-type people. They're entering into the kingdom wild, rebellious people that you would think, why are they even around Jesus? Why would he have them around him? Just people that you would think, good night. They do not need to be a part of heaven. Like, they're just... And then you had these Jewish people, and they're looking at themselves, and they're watching all this take place, and they're seeing people go to the Savior, and they're like, oh my goodness, I just can't believe this. And Jesus explains that the reality is is that the people running to the Savior, they're doing the right thing. The people standing outside looking at it and almost turning away from it. They're, they're in totally messed up shape. I really think Paul's kind of picking this up and painting us a picture in that way. He is saying to us, regardless of where you are, whether you're the most religious person in the world, goody-goody person, or the most rebellious, wherever you stand, the reality is 
both of you need the gospel. Because one has a tendency to say, I'll save myself by being good. The other one says the good life is just living in a wild, rebellious way. At the end of the day, both of them, if you peer deep within their heart, you will see that they are in desperate need of Jesus. And so I hope today as you look at this, that you would consider your own self. And you say, man, sometimes I look like the older brother, sometimes like the younger brother. At the end of the day, the question is, are you doing the proper thing? Which is repenting and trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you would give us a clear understanding of our situation. We know that we can confuse ourselves, that we can blind be blinded by our own hearts. We might even look at things and think, Still, even after looking at this text, I'm probably okay. Because I've probably done enough good. Many of us here have grown up in religious families and we could have built our Christianity on our own merits, on the hope that we place in ourselves, on trusting in our righteousness. And somehow clouded our vision of what's really has been going on in our hearts. I pray if there are those who are lost here today. Lost in their religion. That they would come. To trust in Christ. I pray if there are those here that are lost in their rebellion. That they would turn. To the Lord Jesus. We know that that is our only hope. In Christ's name. Amen.